evening. I've already been ministered to in a very powerful way for many different reasons. First of all, uh, thank you for coming. This is a terrific uh, attendance this evening. We probably have as many here tonight as we used to have in the Sunday morning just a few years ago. So thank you for, for coming back. Uh, as I say, a lot of reasons to rejoice tonight. Uh, wasn't it terrific just to see all the young people uh, here, the children, the, the teens, uh, to see so many involved and interested. And uh, my heart is just warmed because they are a good group of, of young people. Uh, we've got a lot of children and teens that, that really love the Lord. And uh, the future's bright. I'm just excited to see so many uh, children and teens who uh, are really interested in the things of God. So, thank you for that. Now, I think of Angel Tree Ministry, and are grateful that the gospel is being presented to the children of those that are in prison, people who need to hear the Word of God. And now we have this outreach planned in the spring, and I'm very excited about that and hope that you'll participate. As been said, it's not just a, a uh, picnic for church people, but it is intended to be an outreach. You're invited to come with the intent of talking to people you don't know, making them feel welcome, making them feel like they certainly would be welcome at our church service, but uh, trying to influence them in some way for the things of the Lord and perhaps an opportunity for you to share your testimony or even to share the gospel with someone. I'm excited about these things because we have intentionally very much so, uh, planned our evangelism around uh, getting into the community. There are two different ways in which evangelism is done. One is called an attraction model, trying to get people to come to your church, holding rallies and and services, etc., try to bring them in and preach the gospel. The other is to go where they are and to try to reach out to the community, uh, go to places where People need to hear the Word of God and present it to them. And that, in our day and age, is be called a missional approach to evangelism. And we have purposefully, as a church, adopted that approach, seeking to get into our community. And I just remind you that you're in the community every day, at the workplace and uh, the store and other situations, and would really encourage you to be actively engaged in sharing your faith. It's nothing more than... Uh, Just praising the Lord for what took place at church or in your family or uh, in uh, uh, the life of of others, answers to prayer. Loads of opportunities to engage with people and to talk with them. And so we commend those opportunities to you. Tonight we are starting the book of Job. And uh, Clyde, Pastor Clyde and I were talking about Sunday school this quarter and uh, the different offerings, and we're excited about that. Uh, Pastor Clyde doing, of course, in counseling, and uh, Jack Herb doing one in Samuel, and I'm doing one in the book of James. And I said, well, I'm doing suffering. I'm doing suffering in uh, James. I'm doing suffering in Second Corinthians. I'm doing suffering in the book of Job. So you've got to suffer through suffering uh, as... Uh, we are going to be uh, sharing the Word of God this, this quarter. 
But I, I trust that it will prove to be a benefit and a hope to you. I plead with you for a disclaimer. Tonight's stuff is, is pretty heavy. And I promise you that we'll lighten up in terms of content that it won't be as heavy as tonight. But tonight I want to give you some introduction, some background, and uh, some weightier material. But uh, it's certainly going to lighten up and we'll be going verse by verse through the first few chapters of Job and then looking at larger themes. And I trust that it will prove to be a benefit and a help to you. So tonight, looking at the book of Job introduction... And tonight I've used a number of different commentaries and relied upon them pretty heavily. So I've given them the uh, credit uh, for these various sections. How are we to view the book of Job? According to many scholars, the author is unknown. The date of writing is uncertain. The locale is obscure. The historicity is doubted. And the literary integrity of the book is questioned. Coming from the communicator's commentary on Job by Dave McKenna. Then David McKenna also says, later in that same commentary, to enter into the experience of Job, we must either bypass these questions or take some stated facts at face value. Choosing the latter, we believe that Job is a man of history from the land of Uz, whose journey to faith through suffering is essential to God's revelation in Scripture. Obviously, we adopt that approach. We believe that Job is indeed an historical figure. He's mentioned elsewhere. In the Word of God, James in particular mentions Job, as do other sections of Scripture. So we believe he is a historical figure. We believe that the events that are outlined in the book actually took place. They are not just drama in the sense of a made-up story to convey a certain truth. But for the truth to be actually conveyed, there needs to be historicity. There needs to be representation that lies behind it. A reality, if you will. So we certainly ascribe uh, reality to the book of Job. The theme for the book of Job is why does man serve God? Is it because of who God is or is it because of what God does for us? What motivates a person to serve God? Satan's contention was that the only reason that Job was serving God is because God had so richly blessed Job. Because God had made Job very, very wealthy. And we will see that in two weeks. Next uh, Sunday night, Pastor Dave is going to be continuing his series. And then uh, we will be back in the book of Job again. And we'll start verse by verse. And we'll see that Job is incredibly wealthy. In fact, he's probably the wealthiest man on the face of the earth because it tells us that he's the wealthiest man in the east and the east was the wealthiest section of uh, the world at that time. So it's not a huge jump to say that Job was the Bill Gates of his day, the wealthiest man. And so Job, Satan asserts, serves God simply because of what God had done for him. And Satan goes on to assert that if Job lost all these things, then he wouldn't serve God at all. So key verses, Job 1, 8 through 11. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God 
and turning away from evil. He was the most righteous person on the face of the earth at that time. Well, that, that's a claim to fame. Not only was he the wealthiest, but he was the most righteous. Then answered the, uh, then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Hast thou not put a hedge around about him and his house and all that he has on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth thy hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse thee to thy face. So Satan's saying, well, you take those things away and we'll just see how righteous Job really is. We'll just see how God-fearing Job really is. You take his possessions and then let's see what kind of person Job is and how he responds to you. And aside, Satan has it wrong. It is more amazing when man serves God in the midst of his prosperity than in the midst of his uh, need. Uh, there is an old saying, there are no atheists in foxholes. When times get tough, people have a, a natural tendency to cry out to God. It's in times of prosperity that people have a tendency to not see a need for God. I think that's one of the situations that the United States finds itself in today. Even though we are in some kind of economic slowdown, still we're about the wealthiest nation on the face of this earth. We have it well. And it's one of the reasons that people have a tendency not to seek after God. It's when things are troublesome many times that people turn. But you can also see Satan's assertion because here is a person that has it, has it all. And of course, in the book of Job, he loses it all. What is a person going to do in that plight? So the question that arises in the book of Job is, why do the wicked prosper and the innocent suffer in an orderly universe created by a just God? God is just. God is holy. God is right. Therefore, why does why do bad things happen to good people? The book of Job does not give a ready, pithy answer to the great cosmic question. Rather, it provides a perspective on life in which the why question is answered by the who. In other words, we don't understand why some of the things happen. Now, we understand more than Job does. We are given a glimpse of what's taking place in heaven. Uh, the veil, <coughs> excuse me, if you will, has uh, been raised, and we're allowed to see the and uh, to eavesdrop on the conversation that exists between God and Satan. So we know more than what Job does, to be sure. You, and that's important to realize that the Job's in the dark about all of the calamity that's coming upon him. He's going to lose his wealth. He's going to lose his family. He's going to lose everything, including his own health. He has nothing left. And he's clueless as to what is going on. And so, obviously, Job has the why question. Why is this happening? His friends are going to answer that question for him in a very unsuitable way. They are going to assert that it's because of his unrighteousness, because of his wickedness. It's because he has secretly been sinning 
And therefore, God is judging him by taking all these things away. And Job knows that's not the case. Job knows that, that inwardly he has been as faithful to God as he ever has been. He knows that, that he has not been cursing God secretly. He knows that he has not been uh, a hypocrite. Uh, he knows that he has continued to walk the straight and narrow way. Not that he was sinless, but remember, he's the most righteous person on the face of the earth. And Job understands and takes umbrage at the attacks that his friends bring against Job. They say some very unkind things that just simply aren't true. But it's because of their theology. In their mind, the only explanation for the difficulty that Job is going through is that it must be his sin. Thus, the book of Job is an impassioned experience in which the content of religious faith is explored and the process of spiritual growth is revealed. Job's faith through suffering opens his eyes to see what God is doing in the world and wants to do with those who trust him. Then John Piper has written a little book on the, on the, the book of Job. And he says this, and I quote, It is a great sadness when sufferers seek relief by sparing God his sovereignty over pain. So, one of the defenses of God in the book of Job is that this isn't God, this is Satan's activity. And certainly we see Satan involved in what is taking place in Job's life, but it's always under the permissive will of God. He continually has to ask God for permission to take this one step further, to add more affliction to the life of Job. Ultimately, ultimately, this is God at work. So, it is a great sadness when sufferers seek relief by sparing God as sovereignty over pain. The sadness is that it undercuts the very hope it aims to create. When all 42 chapters of this book are said and done, the inspired author leaves us with an unshakable and undoubted fact. God governs all things for his good purposes. Uh, there is an extended section at the end of the book where God speaks to Job face to face and asks Job certain questions. And it all is to demonstrate both the wisdom and the sovereignty of God. Job 42.11 Then all his brothers and all his sisters and all who had known him before came to him and they ate bread with him in his house, and they consoled him and comforted him. And now these words, for all the evil that the Lord had brought on him. And each one gave them one piece of money and each a ring of gold. So at the end of the book, they are coming and consoled him and comforted him with regard to all the evil that the Lord had brought on him. NIV translates that word evil as trouble. That's probably a better translation because it's not talking about moral evil. God did not do a moral evil by taking these things away from uh, Job. Uh, he did not violate his word. He did not act in an inappropriate manner. But it's talking about the trouble, the affliction, the hardship, the pain, 
the suffering. Ultimately, it was from God. Number one, Job is a drama. I'm going to come back to that if I have, have time. I don't know that I'm going to tonight. So let's go over to page three, number two. You can read that on your own. Uh, number two, Job and the Theology of Suffering. Much of this material comes from Job, the New International Commentary on the Old Testament by Johnny Hartley. A Christian cannot experience Job's journey of faith without seeing Christ. Adam is man in sin, Job is man in suffering, and Jesus is man in salvation. In contrast with Adam, Job does not sin, and yet he suffers the effects of sin and cries out of his innocence. Why? That's one of the big questions in the book of Job. Only in Christ do we see the meaning of suffering. When the righteous suffer, they are reunited with the sinner in common experience through which they respond as persons and intercede as Christians. So that Job's suffering went beyond himself. God intended to achieve purposes through Job's suffering that were to be a benefit to others. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But, it is, but if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. We looked at those verses last week in the morning worship service. And I spoke how that meant that Paul was able to be comforted in such a way that that, that comfort was overflowing in his life. He had not only enough strength to go on, but was able to actually minister to others. And we see that in Job 42.10. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. When he prayed for his friends. I find that to be absolutely fascinating. That there's going to be a restoration, if you know the book of Job, that everything that he lost is going to be returned double-fold to him. So that he's going to end up twice as wealthy at the end of the book than he was at the beginning of the book. And if he's already the richest man on the face of the earth, then he's doubly rich of uh, all people at the end of the book. But what we find is that before all of that is restored to him, he is interceding and praying for his friends. Uh, that that comes first. That God so comforts Job that he's able not only to be consoled in his own inner being and is able to go on, but there is an overflowing mercy and compassion that he's ready to pray for his friends and to intercede for them for they did not speak of the things that were right the way Job had. So that, see, in Job's suffering, not only does Job see God in a new light, but his friends see God in a new light as well. Their theology is corrected. Their error is set right. And the health and wealth gospel of today is set right through the book of Job. 
so that we benefit from Job's endurance. We learn from what Job went through. And so it is today with suffering. Uh, Many times we are ministered to by those that are suffering. Maybe you know that experience. You have gone to a hospital room or you have called someone on the phone or you have made a visit in their home with the anticipation of trying to cheer someone up and you come away more encouraged than when you arrived. That, that you have just kind of shaken your head and, and marveled at God's grace in that person's life. That you are ministered to. Job's friends are ministered to in a powerful way as a result of what God is doing in the life of Job. D. Finally, it is only in Christ do we see the end of suffering. Job's question why will remain unanswered because suffering can never be fully explained. But when Christ takes on the load of human suffering, we foresee the end. Revelation 7.17 For the Lamb in the center of the throne shall be their shepherd and shall guide them to springs of the water of life. And God shall wipe every tear from their eyes. Revelation 21.4 He shall wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Job reached the depths of human despair. And certainly he did. Uh, Job wants to die, even as we saw in the life of the Apostle Paul this morning. But Jesus reached the depths of human suffering and torment. Because of Christ, no suffering goes deeper, and all suffering shall end. Next, we learn that a righteous person may suffer. Calamity is not necessarily an indictment against a righteous person's character. In John chapter 9, the disciples see a man that was born blind, and they ask him this question. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, this is addressed to Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? Whose fault is it? His or his parents that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was neither. That this man sinned, nor his parents, but it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, when Jesus says neither, he's not asserting that, that they are sinless, either this man or his parents. What he's simply saying is that it, this is not a direct consequence of their sin. This is not a judgment that comes upon them because of their sin. None of us are perfect. And because of that, because we all know that there is sin in our life, as soon as a tragedy occurs, it is easy for us to jump to that which we know is inappropriate in our lives, that which is unacceptable. And it's easy to look at our lives and say, it's because of this that this tragedy has come upon me. It's because I'm out of fellowship here. It's essential for us to understand that difficult and hard things come into our lives that are not necessarily the consequences of our behavior. And so we can be in a right relationship with God and find out that we're struggling 
Or we can be out of fellowship with God and it seems like everything's going okay. And that's Psalm 78. And the, the question the psalmist asks, why is there no pain or suffering in the death of, of the wicked? So the book of Job puts those issues in some kind of perspective. The righteous often suffer in order to accomplish God's purpose. And there are numerous purposes that we're going to see in the book of Job. F. A righteous person may suffer greatly. Job, a man of great faith and flawless character, suffers deeply in every aspect of his existence. Job suffers emotionally, physically, socially, and spiritually. First that I used this morning, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. G, a righteous person may struggle to overcome suffering. The center of Job's test is that the anguish caused by God's apparently unreasoned anger threatens to break his moral resolve. Desperately, he gropes for some way out of the spiritual darkness. By vigorously lamenting his bitter feelings, he comes to grips with his anguish and directs his thoughts to seek some resolution to his predicament. As he probes for resolution, his thinking is governed by three principles. First, God is all-powerful and just. Job never loses sight of that in the entire book. He never loses sight of the fact that God is powerful and God is just. He knows that what is happening to him is under the authority of God. This is not something outside of God's pale. Something that God doesn't want to happen, but unfortunately he cannot do anything about. Job knows this is the activity of God, and he knows that God is righteous. After that, he's got a whole bunch of questions, but he knows that. Secondly, he himself is innocent, undeserving of affliction. Now, we, we say those things carefully, because again, we know that nobody is sinless. And so, there's a sense in which all of us are guilty, but, but God is not capricious. God is not an angry ogre who sits in heaven. Our sins are forgiven in relationship to Jesus Christ. He bore our penalty. He bore our sin. The purpose of God's discipline in our lives is not penal in the sense of simply meeting out punishment. It's always correctional. Meaning that it is in order to bring us back to a relationship to Jesus Christ. It is absolutely clear when you begin the book of Job that Job's in a right relationship with God. He says he is. And then it talks about how Job is praying for his family and, and the offering of sacrifices and all the things that, that Job is doing. So Job knows this is not about bringing him back. For he never wandered away. That's the best way to think about this. Not sinless, but this is not to bring him back 
because he had never wandered away. He had been faithfully worshiping and serving God. So he knows that. And he never loses sight of that. And he never backs down from that. And his friends constantly are accusing him, but he holds on to that with great determination. And I would say to you, great comfort. That that's one of his comforts as he goes through this. This is not God's judgment on him for his sin. Now, we know that because the veil has been lifted for us and we know about the conversation that took place between God and Satan. But Job doesn't know about that conversation. He doesn't know, but he's sure that this is not God's judgment for his sin. And thirdly, a premature death would be an unbearable disgrace. He must abide under his suffering. So, Job knows that it would be wrong for him to end his suffering by ending his life. And if you remember Job's wife, and let's not get too tough on Job's wife, because Job's wife went through virtually everything that Job did. She lost her children. She lost her wealth. She lost everything. The only thing that she didn't experience that Job did was the painful boils and physical anguish that came upon Job. She didn't experience that. But she experienced everything else. But when he does experience that, of course, she turns to her husband and says, curse God and die. Not very good advice. But she says, curse God and die. Raise your fist towards God. Rebel against God. And in essence, take your life. That's, Job, your only way out of this. Why are you enduring? Why do you put up with this? Why don't you just end your life? That's the third principle that Job never loses sight of. Job, in his despair, curses the day that he was born. He wishes he was never born. He, he goes through a lot of anguish of, of the why and why would God bring him into this existence and all those kind of things. So, he's got to wrestle with those thoughts, but he never contemplates the actual ending of his life. And of course, if he would have, humanly speaking, he never would have experienced the deliverance. He never would have been the example. He never would have accomplished all that God had for Job. And to me, that is by far the greatest lesson for us to take away from the book of Job. And it's the application that the book of James makes about endurance. That he practices endurance. If you turn with me to page 6, The last scripture verse on page 6, James 5.11, Behold, we count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. We see that because 
He endured. He hung in there. And I have been emphasizing Sunday morning in the book of Corinthians that God's mercy and God's comfort is the ability to make the unbearable bearable. It's not that he removes the pain, but he takes the edge off. He makes it possible to go through it. And Job is willing to go through it. He doesn't take a sinful way out. For him, the only way out would have been to take his life. Sometimes the way for us to take a way out is to go into sin, to flee, to go in the opposite way, like a, a Jonah who, who, who tries to go in a different direction. It's throwing up one's hand and says, I had enough of this, and walks away from their relationships, or walks away from the church, or walks away from their faith, or whatever the case may be. Job doesn't walk away. And because he hangs in there, he then learns all of what God has for him. I would just encourage you tonight that you endure the trials that you are in and you don't walk away from them. You don't flee them. You don't take a sinful way out. But if you hang in there, you will see the deliverance of God. You will see the mercy of God. H, a righteous person may have many questions in suffering. You can look at that. I'm out of time. I, a person may have a wonderful encounter with God as a result of suffering. Awed by God's majesty and overwhelmed by God's grace in reasoning with him, Job surrenders his complaint against God, realizing that a person must surrender his rights to God because God is Lord. He learns of the surpassing greatness and privilege of knowing God. And so we have this remarkable statement at the end of Job, again, the most righteous person on the face of the earth when we start, and he says this, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees thee. In other words, there was a lot that I knew intellectually. There was a lot I understood about God. But I really didn't fully get it until I went through this experience. And he said, now, now my eye sees thee. Now there's an experiential knowledge of God. Clearly, Job finds the antidote to suffering to reside in the intimate, personal, divine human encounter. It is this encounter that Job finds relief in his suffering. The spiritual, emotional, psychological relief comes prior to the restoration of all things. Again, that is absolutely essential to understand in this book. Job is comforted before his health comes back. He is comforted before his wealth is returned. Job is delighting in God before any of those things have taken place. He has learned through a personal encounter with God to rejoice in the midst of his suffering. And with that, Satan is shut up. The friends have learned an important lesson. Job's faith 
has proven to be genuine and real and developed. And God just pours out His blessing upon Job because all that God intended in Job's suffering had been realized. But the book of Job teaches us that God's consolation is enough even without restoration. I hope uh, we can enjoy the book of Job together. It's filled with a lot of insights and uh, a lot of really, I think, uh, tremendous uh, thoughts for us in our relationship with God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for Job and for his life and help us. And I pray for any that tonight are enduring hardship and difficulty. And certainly there are people in our congregation who are going through a lot of trials in their life. Some physically, some emotionally, some materially, some socially. Lord, we don't need to instruct You. You know, and we just plead for Your grace for each one. And we ask, O oh God, that You would help them to endure, to remain steadfast, immovable, doing what is right, even in a time in which they may be counseled to do what is wrong. Even our loved ones, in their well-meaning conversations, such as Job's wife, who wants to bring comfort to Job, says, curse God and die. Even so, we may encounter Christians who are going to give us bad advice about taking a way out of our suffering that doesn't glorify you and robs us of the enduring qualities and blessedness of seeing things through. So, Lord, grant faith, grant steadfastness, grant endurance, grant help to all tonight to be able to remain under the situations that you place them in. And I pray that you would take the edge off the pain that they are counting. And Lord, that you would help them to bear the unbearable. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. And you are dismissed.